The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Matthew, chapter 3, reading the first half of chapter 3. Matthew, chapter 3. And let's stand as we read the Word of God. This is a true story. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is God's word. Good morning, everyone. I'm just going to take a drink before we get started. It's that time of year when you've got the scratchy throat. and Yeah. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this true story. We thank you that it has everything to do with us today. And Lord, I ask that whether these truths are new or old, that they'll hit us where we live. And um, that all of us would live honestly before you. And that we would prepare a way for you in our own hearts. That our lives would be open before you. We pray it in Christ's name for his glory. Amen. So we're continuing our series through the Gospel of Matthew, which we've titled Rise of the Cosmic King. And that may sound like a Marvel movie to you, but what it's meant to do is get after that shock of Jesus at the center of human history and just how all transforming his ministry and his present rule really are. This concept of Jesus on the throne, it can't just stay something out there, this, this vague concept. No, it, it intrudes. It affects our lives publicly and privately. And listen to this long quote from the British scholar C.S. Lewis. He said that 
men are reluctant to pass over from the notion of an abstract deity to the living God. And he says, I do not wonder. The pantheist God, so the, the God that's just out there somewhere, he does nothing. He demands nothing. He's there if you wish for him, like a book on a shelf. He will not pursue you. There's no danger that at any time heaven and earth should flee away at his glance. So it is with a shock that we discover God to actually be king. You have had a shock like that before, like when the fishing line pulls at your hand or when something breathes beside you in the darkness. Lewis continues, And this is the very point at which so many draw back and proceed no further with Christianity. An impersonal God? Well and good. A subjective God of beauty, truth, and goodness inside our own heads, better still. A formless life force surging through us, a vast power which we can tap best of all. But God himself? Alive? Pulling at the other end of the cord? Perhaps approaching at an infinite speed? The hunter, king, and husband? That is quite another matter. It's like when children who have been pretending to be burglars hush suddenly. Was that a real footstep in the hall? There comes a moment when people who have been dabbling in man's search for God suddenly draw back, supposing we really found him. We never meant it to come to that. We're still supposing he has found us. And that's a powerful quote. In, in Matthew chapter 3, we see that the living God, in fact, does pursue us and therefore does demand something of us. Actually, he demands everything of us. Does that scare you or excite you? And maybe if we understand it rightly, it'll have both effects. But don't take my word for it. Let's hear from a different messenger, one who was specifically raised up to introduce us to the divine king. We read in verse 1 that in those days, John the Baptist came preaching. Now, even outside the Bible, we have reports of John's influence. The first century Roman historian Josephus, in his work Antiquities of the Jews, he wrote that John, who was called the Baptist, was a good man and commanded the Jews to exercise virtue toward one another and piety toward God and to come to a baptism as a washing that would indicate the putting away of sins. But John wasn't only baptizing. Matthew says that he was also preaching, or you could translate it proclaiming or heralding in the wilderness of Judea. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then we're given this explanation, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now let's think about that quote from Isaiah chapter 40 because this was written 700 years before Jesus and it's actually the turning point of the whole book of Isaiah. So it says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Well, that's really poetic language, but what it's prophesying 
is the restoration of the people of God. There can be this new season, Isaiah's prophesying, where the soul will be comforted and sin will be pardoned and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. So how would all that happen? The Lord himself is somehow coming in a way that he hadn't before. And so what are the people being told? Some mysterious voice in the wilderness is pictured as crying out, prepare the way of the Lord, make a straight highway for our God. Have you ever seen a highway being made? Whether it's a U.S. interstate or whether it's um, an ancient Near Eastern King's Highway, some basics are still the same, right? Low places have to be lifted up, filled in. High places are leveled out and rough places are made smooth. So now Matthew is telling us that John the Baptist is Isaiah's voice in the wilderness. He's telling us, John is telling us, to prepare for the Lord's arrival by making a highway for our God. But those aren't John's actual words, right? John's actual words are, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so that leaves us with several questions. First, what is the kingdom of heaven? Second, how is it at hand? And then, in what way is repentance like building a highway? So, first, what is the kingdom of heaven? Doesn't God always rightfully reign over everything? Yes, but the point is that his reign was, through Jesus' ministry, about to become visible on earth as it is in heaven. So, Matthew uses this term, kingdom of heaven, throughout the book, and and he doesn't use kingdom of God like the other gospel writers do. So we think that that's because he wants to stress that the two realms are coming together, and he wants to stress that this is not some religiously themed earthly political movement. Something different, something truly transcendent is happening here. God is creating a new humanity, whole and joyful, and eventually he's liberating all of nature from its corruption. So heaven is coming down to earth. Now that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that means it's completed its arrival. The plane is on the runway. It means that it's within a hand's reach. So picture an overlap of the ages. Now is the window of time when one must move from the old reality, kingdom of this world, to the new reality, the kingdom of heaven. And was that a message that could only be preached by John the Baptist? Because if you think about it, once Jesus arrived on the scene, then the kingdom isn't at hand anymore, right? But it's just kind of here? Well, it's not that simple. The New Testament speaks of Jesus' arrival as actually the start of that overlap of the ages. But that time isn't done until his second coming. And so that means that even today we can extend the invitation and the promise of the kingdom to everyone around us, telling them that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The urgency is the same. And the doorway to that kingdom is repentance. Now we need to be careful how we hear this word repentance because some, some of you may have images of people who are punishing themselves trying to perform penance of some sort. Or you may think that the repentant person is just perpetually gloomy. Maybe he he or she hates themselves. Nothing could be further from the truth. What the command to repent means here is turn your heart in a way that turns your whole self. 
Turn your heart in a way that turns your whole self. So it's not saying do better. It's not saying fix yourself so that God can love you. No, repent is saying open up, be honest, and open your hands, both to drop the wrong thing that was in them, but also to receive then the freedom that God wants to give you. So repentance is a whole life U-turn. We specifically address and renounce the ways in which we've disobeyed God. And we're trusting in his mercy that forgives. We're trusting in his grace that's going to enable us to live differently going forward. Repentance is more than just feeling sorry for your sins or failures. It does involve sorrow, but it's a sorrow that leads to God who freely pardons. And then he lifts us up and he gives us joy based on his promises, not on our performance. So one mark of true repentance is that we no longer have to hide our past actions, the the sins of which we were most ashamed. There's no danger of them being discovered in the wrong way. We don't even mind speaking of them to other Christians when it could be useful for them because that past has no hold on us anymore. So repentance doesn't mean that we've somehow added to a criminal record that can now be used against us. No, repentance means that criminal record is erased and you can talk about it because it's just a canceled piece of paper. Repentance makes our past sins into testimonies of God's goodness And so we can speak of that specifically with others to the glory of God. And something to note is that the command repent here is a present and continuing verb. So you could translate it begin and continue repenting. Here's a test. Does begin and continue repenting, does that sound burdensome to you? Or does it sound freeing? If we're thinking about repentance somehow as earning God's pardon, then, well, yeah, that's, that's going to feel exhausting. But if we're thinking about it as having a burden cleared away, then that will be freeing. Martin Luther wrote that when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended the entire life of believers to be repentance. So think about, think about a life that's just lived that way in perpetual repentance, perpetual growing aware of where we're not in line with God and repenting of it. How much unnecessary guilt and shame do we carry around with us because we don't want to walk in continual repentance? And what freedom might start to mark your life if you started keeping short accounts with God and you were just habitually and quickly honest with him about the dark spots of your heart? He knows them anyway. So why not keep coming to him in repentance? That is the straight highway for our God that's being depicted here. One where as soon as a rough spot of moral bankruptcy pops up, as soon as the bottom drops out because of failed self-reliance, as soon as there's this, this peak of our ego emerging again, we come to him and we say, God, you're... You're the God who wants to dwell in me. So fill this troubled spot. You are welcome here. Do the necessary demolition and grading and smoothing and travel freely and mark this domain as part of your kingdom. And really that message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the message that this passage has for us today. We could be done here in one sense. But Instead, let's draw out the message even more with the verses that follow. They are there for a reason. So repent 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Prepare the way of the Lord. Why should we take this message seriously? First, there's no mistaking that this is God's messenger. So we should turn to God because he sent a voice for you. Now that may seem strange when we read verse 4. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. But see, this short description would have been full of meaning for Matthew's first readers. In the Old Testament book of 2 Kings, the powerful prophet Elijah was described in this way. It says, he wore a garment of hair with a leather belt around his waist. Now why in the world would someone wear a garment of hair? Well, in Elijah's case, it's because he brought an unpopular message and he was hunted by the wicked king Ahab. So he had to live in the wilderness and make his own clothing from wild animals. That, that was Elijah's reason. But then Elijah became the gold standard for prophets and so that it seems in, in the centuries following, other prophets, legitimate or otherwise, they, they wanted to announce themselves as a prophet and they would imitate Elijah's outfit. It became the prophet's uniform, so to speak. Well, in the very last chapter of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, so these are the last words of Scripture before 400 years of a gap until the time of Jesus, it says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter desolation. So here we have another prophecy that the people would need to be prepared before the day of the Lord's coming. And, and it said, I will send you Elijah, the prophet. So either God was going to send Elijah back from heaven, or he's speaking of someone else using the name Elijah, kind of like in the Old Testament when it's, um, it's speaking of the future Messiah. Sometimes it calls him David even though David's been dead for hundreds of years, because Jesus would be like David in significant ways. And so it's a similar dynamic here. In Matthew 11, Jesus has a conversation with the crowds about John the Baptist, and he specifically says, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So here you have the first prophet in four centuries, looking like Elijah, and he's eating this crazy food, locusts and wild honey. In Exodus and in Joel, locusts are very clearly signs of God's judgment. Throughout the Bible, the sweetness of honey is a sign of abundance and blessing. And in Ezekiel chapter 3, the prophet is told, eat this scroll and go, speak to the house of Israel. And Ezekiel writes, So I opened my mouth, and he gave me this scroll to eat. Then I ate it, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. So all of this imagery combines in John's diet of locusts and wild honey to tell us that he has much to say about judgment and about blessing, and that because these words are divinely given, they should be welcomed as sweet and good. John was also a voice in the wilderness. We know that that location is important. We know that God first made his covenant with the people of Israel, having brought them out into the wilderness to meet with them. And it was from the wilderness then that the people under Joshua crossed over the Jordan River and entered into the land of promise. 
And here's John calling the people back out to the wilderness, asking them to enter into the Jordan River and return to the land changed. So he's signaling to the people of God that you need to be reconstituted, reshaped, renewed. And with a life and teaching to back it up, there was no mistaking that John was God's messenger. For us today, the message that prepares the way of Christ is still proclaimed by men and women like John. For these voices in the wilderness, the things of this world aren't that important to them. They're not afraid to anger powerful people. They know that what's coming in Jesus Christ is the greatest possible joy for those who will have him and the greatest possible loss for those who won't. And so they are bold and many people will run from messengers like that. Like the Apostle Paul had predicted, the time has come when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. So there are plenty of churches and Christian voices that, unlike John, will create no uneasiness for people at all. They want to be your coach, your inspiration, your hero, but never your prophet. Yet 21 centuries after John, the living God still does continue to make himself plainly known through faithful messengers that we can recognize as legitimate because of how they reflect all of Scripture. Will you not listen to them, even when they tell you hard things? Will you not listen to me to the extent that I'm in sync with God's word? Because the message for all of us is unchanged. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But will people even take notice of of such an outlandish message, something that demands so much of them? Yes, they will. We, We see with John the Baptist that God has a way of announcing his coming so that there's no missing what's going on. And in Acts, even the Apostle Paul, he's sharing the gospel with King Agrippa, and he says, I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped your notice, for this has not been done in a corner. And the same is true in our context today. If you live in most parts of the world, certainly if you're here this morning, there's no way that you can one day say, well, I just didn't know that anyone was suggesting that I need to prepare the way for Christ. And verse 5 says that Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him. And they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. We see that John's audience was broad and very responsive. God was doing something big. And let's not miss the fact that John is baptizing. Baptism was very physical, very public way of displaying the message of repentance. Now at that time, this was new, because baptism up to that point had been a Jewish ritual. It was a washing that was given to proselytes. It was given to, to Gentiles who wanted to become Jews. They had to get circumcised, they were male, and they had to go through baptism and some other um, ceremonies. But Baptism for those who were born Jews? This is, this is something totally new. And can you imagine how insulting it must have felt to some people, basically saying that they're just as needy as a non-Jew, that they somehow needed to become the people of God again? How humiliating is that? Why would an Israelite submit to, to a demand like that? Well, because they felt the weight of their sin. And they felt, they felt it in themselves that they were unable to conquer the plague of sin Within them, they knew that they needed a savior. They wanted to be free of that weight. And so it was quite easy for them actually to agree with what John said, that they needed to come to God in a new way. 
And just as in John's ministry, even now today, whenever the kingdom of God is being proclaimed in power, there's no missing what's going on. I'll give you an example. In 1831, Baptist missionary Adoniram Judson, he wrote this about his work in Burma. He said, The spirit of inquiry is spreading everywhere through the whole length and breadth of the land. We've distributed nearly 10,000 tracts, giving to none but those who ask. I presume there have been 6,000 requests here at the house. Some come two or three months' journey from the borders of Siam and China, saying, Sir, we hear that there is an eternal hell. We're afraid of it. Do give us a writing that will tell us how to escape it. Others from the frontiers of Cathay, Sir, we have seen a writing that tells about an eternal God. Are you the man that gives away such writings? If so, please give us one, for we want to know the truth before we die. Others from the interior of the country where the name of Jesus Christ is a little known ask, are you the Jesus Christ man? Give us a writing that tells us about Jesus Christ. You know, we often fear so much the offense that that may be perceived when we proclaim repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it's true, there will be offense given. There may be brutal opposition. I mean, Judson himself experienced that in the 12 years before he got this reaction. And John the Baptist, he gave much offense and and he was eventually killed by Herod for it. But if the Lord is coming, then his way must be prepared in each of us. And if that is going to mean either locusts or honey, then we must speak in such a way that there can be no missing the message. And we must pray to God that the spirit of inquiry would spread everywhere across Plainfield and Oswego and Joliet and Romeoville because he's able to bring about repentance and renewal here just as he did in the wilderness of Judea where the kingdom, the message of the kingdom is, is going out broadly. Then there will be no missing what's going on. Something big is happening. And so if this talk of repentance and, and the kingdom of heaven is new to you today. You, you should be asking more, just like those Southeast Asians in Judson's day, just like thousands throughout the Islamic world today who are taking risks to seek out news of Jesus Christ. There is no missing that something unique and of the utmost urgency is requiring your response. But with all this talk of repentance, you should also know that it's possible to be a pretender. Verse 7. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the the wrath to come? And we know that the Pharisees were the Jewish religious purists. They were against Rome. They were very popular with the people because they were looked to for spiritual guidance. The Sadducees, on the other hand, they were the aristocratic priestly sect, and they had made their peace with Rome, and they'd profited significantly from it. The Sadducees could be very worldly, but they carried the official temple authority. So these two groups were opposed on nearly every issue. But when popularity is at stake, two enemies will often unite against a common threat. And John perceives that they are actually threatened by his message, and so he gets their attention quickly, calling them a brood of vipers, offspring of serpents, known for their subtle movements and lethal attacks. Now, it's not clear if these leaders were there to try to find fault with John's ministry or maybe they were there to go through the motions of baptism themselves. We don't know, but either way, John says it's not going to matter. He says they're on a collision course with the wrath of God. 
Because when the king of all goodness and joy and purity establishes his reign, there's no place for those who remain cynical opportunists, addicted to corruption and control. So John reminds them of this. And it may seem like John is responding to their hypocrisy with kind of almost cruelty, but he's not. He's, he's as blunt as he needs to be with pretenders. And he does point them to the way of true life. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So two things there. First, is the way you live your life consistent with the words that you say about repentance? You know, if a dying tree has turned a corner, how do you know? Well, because it has blossoms and it, and it produces fruit and a healthy tree can't help but do that. And it's seen, so there's no pretending. Now, Jesus is going to return to that concept in his Sermon on the Mount in a few chapters. But secondly, they need to realize that their heritage will not deliver them from the judgment that's coming soon on fruitless trees. Now, some of us were born into families and cultures where this language about repentance was normal and we just kind of adopted that language and we're sure to do some outwardly good actions to conform to the expectations of those around us. But has there been a true turning of our inner self? Privately, is there a desperation for God? Has there been the weight of sin lifted and the experience of your soul being washed? Your Christian upbringing counts for nothing in determining your standing with the king. Do you understand that? It's been said that God has no grandchildren. You must be his child directly. So whether your parents knew him, uh, that gets you nothing other than the grace of having the good news proclaimed in your home and being prayed for. But just as God could raise up children for Abraham from these stones, just like Jesus would later tell the religious leaders that the prostitutes and the tax collectors are coming into the kingdom before you, so also in our day, we may have full churches that are dead, and yet God will raise up true children for himself out of the gangs, out of the mosques, out of the transgender community. So stop posturing and playing a game of appearing spiritual. Do business with God so that you can start bearing the fruit that comes from walking in true receptivity toward him. Verse 10, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You can kind of picture an axe blade. You, you set it softly against the tree at first to ensure an accurate cut and that's right before you're going to draw it back for that hard and decisive swing so implication it's not the hour for these jewish leaders to somehow be measuring john no no no. it's it's the hour for them to repent or face god's verdict and for us today if you've been pretending with god don't you see that the axe is at the roots don't you see that it's time to get real with god before it's too late. No one is saved by their parents' faith. No one is saved by being a church member or by holding a position of leadership in the church or by other people thinking they are really pious or by having said mere words or gone through mere rituals of repentance. The repentance that comes with true faith produces a lifestyle that proves that changed heart. Now, how do we know the real thing from the fake, right? 
Okay, good fruit, it says. But didn't even the Pharisees perform good deeds and have a good reputation? Yes, they did. So admittedly, it can be hard to tell the difference. The Sermon on the Mount, starting in chapter 5, will help us to think through that more carefully. But also, remember how the Isaiah passage about preparing the way for the Lord, remember how that passage starts? Comfort, comfort my people. See, the whole message of repentance is one that happens within the larger context of comfort. So when someone repents in a way that leads to life, then they experience comfort from the good news of Jesus Christ. And that soul-level comfort then leads to fruits other than just outward good deeds, fruits like joy and peace that are much harder to fake. So if comfort and peace and joy seem strangers to you, don't try to fake it till you make it. It won't work. Humble yourself. Come confessing even that religious posturing. Come looking, as John told everyone to look. Look to the person of Jesus Christ. He is mighty to save even the proudest and the most numb of us. He is glorious enough to satisfy us fully as we finally take our eyes off of ourselves. But what if I just don't want to believe this? I'm going to shove these thoughts about repentance and judgment far, far away and just, just ignore the whole framework. Well, you, you actually can't just close your eyes and stop up your ears and choose to focus elsewhere because what John is announcing is the coming of Jesus. And with Jesus comes the sorting of all things. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So John's not deluded by the popularity he's enjoying. He doesn't think he's anything but an arrow sign pointed to the one that people truly need. He wants us to know that Jesus is the mighty one. Jesus is the worthy one. John wouldn't even dare to carry Jesus' dusty, animal poop-covered sandals for him. He sees Jesus as that glorious, that above him in honor. He has the messenger's correct view. That is the right status for us. So I hope you know that this morning. That, I mean, you can certainly write me off as some sort of nut job or misanthrope, but you can't write off the coming one. You can't write off Jesus the Christ, who John first announced. What does Jesus want with you? He came to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, and with fire. Now, this, is a, this is one baptism with a compound object. So you could say Jesus baptizes with spirit fire. And when we're baptized in water, what that's supposed to be symbolizing is something that's happened within us, where we're flooded or indwelt by the very Spirit of God, and, then, and we pass through that purifying refiner's fire of his presence in a way that changes us forever. And if you're a true Christian here today, that has been your experience. If you're not sure if that's been your experience, I'd encourage you to ask him, ask God to make that spirit fire evident in you today. Verse 12 says, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So this is agricultural imagery that it may be hard for us to understand, but in the olden days, before the sophisticated harvesting machines, 
they would cut the wheat with a sickle, right? And then somehow the head of grain needed to be separated from the rest of the plant. So they'd take it to the threshing floor. They'd thresh it, which means thrash it. Um, just beat it until the, the grain came apart from the rest of the plant. But then it's still just all sitting there on the floor together. So what do you do? You take your pitchfork-like thing, and with a, a breeze moving through, you toss it all up in the air. And um, the, the useless parts of the plant kind of float to the side, and the heavy grain just falls straight down. Now, I really like how the message translation gets after this verse. It says, He's going to clean house, make a a clean sweep. He'll place everything true in its proper place before God. Everything false, he'll put out with the trash to be burned. So you can't choose to ignore the winnowing fork of Christ. We are all on the threshing floor, whether we admit it or not. Now, you can't pretend to be on the right side of that sorting if you're not. You can't pretend to be grain if you're chaff. You can't say that you weren't aware that this was going to happen. His call to turn to him has gone out to the whole world and our very consciences bear witness to it. There's no missing it and there's no mistaking his messenger. Those who bear witness about Jesus, the coming king, they do so in line with all the past prophets and apostles of scripture, proving their authenticity also through walking in repentance themselves. And so the only wise response here is to begin and to continue repenting to live a life that is honest with God and quickly inviting him into the dark places. So I'm gonna pause now and just take inventory. I want you to ask yourselves what low places of depravity in your life are not worthy of the king and what high places in your life have been all about worship of yourself and must be lopped off to make a highway in your soul for our God. What rough patterns must be leveled out to prepare his way? If you have a pen and paper, if you have your phone, just take some time now, jot down what the Lord brings to mind. A sin pattern, whether in thought or word or deed, that you're no longer going to excuse, but instead you plan to openly confess it to God and turn away from it completely. I'm gonna give us a a fair bit of time right now. Whatever you've written down or noted in your mind, I'd encourage you not to sit on that, but confess it to one of the pastors or to other Christians in your life so that you can have support in your turning and you can be reminded of the freedom that's yours in repentance because of Christ's finished work on the cross. As we encounter Jesus by traveling through the book of Matthew together, let's start like those here in chapter 3, preparing the way of the Lord, coming to him, confessing our sins. And as we leave those moments of repentance each day, each hour, you know what will happen? We'll feel free and comforted and known and met, met with mercy, met with new purpose, And so we're going to keep walking in that repentance as a people prepared for his coming until the glory of the Lord is revealed at Christ's return. And finally, all flesh will see it together. Lord, enable this lifestyle in us of perpetual repentance. 
Show us the freedom and the goodness of keeping short accounts with you. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't walk in, in, a, in falsehood where we feel like we have to cover up our true selves, where we have to put on our, our religious veneer so that other people are impressed with us or don't suspect anything. Lord, I pray that you'd teach us the meaning of true repentance, that we would see that when we repent and come to you, sin no longer has any power over us. I pray that there'd be a new freedom in our midst to speak about our own sin, past and present, to, to share that with each other, to encourage one another in the struggle, to give you glory with the monuments of, of sin that's been repented of in the past. And Lord, we pray this not so that we will be people who are always only thinking about sin. No, no. We're turning from sin so that we can think about far greater things, glorious things, the things that bring joy and peace. But we can't get there if we have the baggage. So teach us to walk in repentance every day. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.